When I say performance art, your mind likely wanders to the Upper West Side. Posh, elegant, manicured. For many, it's instantly recognizable by the rows of residential townhomes and pristine, tulip-lined streets. The San Remo and the Dakota soar out into the skyline against the westernmost border of Central Park. Not unlike its east side counterpart, the Upper West Side is a cultural hub in its own right, from Columbia University and Barnard down to Juilliard and the Lincoln Center that houses the New York City Ballet, American Ballet Theater, the Opera, and the Philharmonic. The architecture, people, and sheer prestige are storied and a bit intimidating, to say the least. If you are at all into performing arts the way we are, you probably grew up fantasizing about the day you'd get to see your favorite play or ballet in a venue designed to hold the opulence of the Nutcracker or Beethoven's Fifth. To me, a young girl living a very ordinary life in the suburbs of Texas, these institutions represented everything I wasn't and everything I thought I wanted to be. A modern-day Holly Golightly or Gigi. Funny enough, the Metropolitan Opera House was built to house America's industrialist elite, like the Vanderbilts, Morgans, and Roosevelts, whose money wasn't old enough to snag a private box at the Academy of Music Opera House. I mean, really, imagine Vanderbilt money not being enough. With a bit of age and life experience, we can start to see these institutions for what they really are. Guardians of American art and culture, absolutely. But especially after the conversations we've had as a country in the past year and a half on racial equity, gender inequality, pay, working conditions, it's very obvious that there is a lot of work that has to be done before these institutions truly serve every American. New York's Carnegie Hall and Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts have canceled their fall schedules because of the coronavirus pandemic, and the New York City Ballet called off its annual holiday presentation of Tchaikovsky's The Nutcracker. Anywhere from 40 to 60 to 70 percent of the arts industry right now is unemployed or laid off or furloughed. Um, And that's not probably going to change for many months. Ballet has obviously a perception of elitism and it's a luxury to go and it definitely appeals to a certain demographic, generally older, wealthier, primarily white audiences. And um, I was just frustrated because I thought, you know, the work we're doing is really cool. There's young emerging choreographers that are presenting work on stage in these ballet companies but aren't being seen by younger audiences. One signal we could look at is the New York City Ballet, who recently announced their fall 2021 season. Here's a statement on their website. Following an unprecedented hiatus from live performances, New York City Ballet makes its long-awaited return to the stage with a one-time-only opening night program kicking off the 2021-22 season. There's perhaps no more fitting work to mark this historic homecoming than George Balanchine's landmark creation, Serenade, with its familiar Tchaikovsky score heralding the end of a long journey back as the curtain rises on ballerinas in iconic blue tulle, hands raised to the sky in reverence. It's dramatic. It's really, really dramatic. And it's interesting because they seem to be celebrating their return to the stage with traditional stories. And I'd love your take on whether you think this is a return to the classics out of comfort or something else. I mean, sure, you look at American Ballet Theater and they're returning with Giselle, another classic. And I think part of that is 
out of practicalities. I mean, it's been nearly impossible to rehearse, so I'm sure every company is pulling something out of the repertoire that they can get up and going quite easily. But at the same time, it is very interesting because, yes, perhaps audience members are looking to some of the creature comforts of the ballet. I mean, I was very excited to see that Giselle was on the list, but in a way, it does feel impossible to resume as if things haven't changed, as if we haven't changed as people and just go back to the same stories because... We're not the same storytellers. I mean, I don't know if you saw the article that came out in the New York Times. Um, I think it was called What is a Ballet Body? And it told the story of principal ballerina Lauren Lovett. She, like many of us during the pandemic, gained a bit of weight and realized that she preferred her body that way. And she said quite bluntly that I won't be dancing at 94 pounds anymore. That's just not going to happen. And she sort of took a stance on behalf of the ballet community, which is a bit notorious for perpetuating these toxic beauty standards of thinness. And while that might not be the same obstacle that all of us face, I think there is something bigger there that she's saying, that we're all saying. We've had a year and a half now to sit with ourselves and reevaluate things, reevaluate our roles in society and our relationships with ourselves and others. And I think most of us are returning, whatever that means, in a different way with different priorities. Yeah, it's really interesting to watch because some of these artists are going back to their stages to perform revivals of our favorite classics, kind of like those of us with office jobs are similarly prepping to return to the workplace. But this time, the act feels different, and you really can't ignore the fact that something's changed. I totally agree. As offices start to reopen in New York City, we're all sitting here thinking about the script the social codes that have sat over there in the corner collecting dust for a year and a half. I think it'll be quite the feat to recalibrate into the roles of Goldman Sachs VP, the private equity analyst, the Condé Nast fashion editor, or the startup founder with their pitch ready to go at a moment's notice. It feels silly. There's an element of performance art in all of it. You can't tell me the banker doesn't kick off his bottegas for some Adidas at home. His stage is that 67-story marble-walled office in Midtown. You know the one, across from the Pret. His costume? An overly starched, white-collared shirt, Brooks Brothers suit jacket, Rolex. You get the gist. I mean... We New Yorkers have quite the reputation for our character tropes. Rich Mom Starter Pack, Upper East Side Edition. Oh, you just inherited $50 million. And your husband did too. You want to move to the Upper East Side to be with all the other naturally wealthy people. Here's what you'll need to fit right in. Snag a little apartment at 740 Park Avenue. Before they let you move in, it's actually a requirement to get a little crusty white dog who's not that cute. Pick up one of those and name it Tabitha or something. Celebrate your new apartment, go to the Lowe's Regency and have like 18 gin martinis. Don't worry if you get sloppy. Blacking out as an adult is part of Upper East Side culture. Fun, send your kids to Dalton so you feel edgy and momentarily liberal. As for what to wear, you're going to need several $20,000 Loro Piana capes. Are they practical? 
Not really, but neither are you. Top off any look with a Birkin. The older, the better. Just like your husband's and your money. Spend all your days at Via Quadrona drinking cow's milk cappuccinos. Almond milk is for hippies. The club girl aesthetic, let's talk about it. NYC club girl aesthetic has ensconced itself in fashion. It is a benchmark aesthetic, but rarely talked about. Features of the aesthetic are the color black, often very tight to the body black dresses. The YSL tribute shoes are a staple of this aesthetic, but can be interchanged with any sandal style high heel. The perfume black opium, sunglasses, a small half moon bag often with conspicuous branding, and effortlessly messy hair. I have a lot of respect for this aesthetic, although it is quite polarizing. Made up of a lot of simple elements, when put together with the right attitude, they create the club girl aesthetic. Fashion moves so unbelievably fast that often looks that we feel are the most cemented change constantly. But one has stayed true and resilient through even the most trying times. That is the club girl aesthetic. This aesthetic has a special place in my heart, as do the people that wear it. Let me know your thoughts in the comments. This is the best place to be rich, Elizabeth Bachelor's Harry Styles edition. Number one, Clonestinos. The men here are definitely not Harry Styles, but they're going to think they invented style because they have a leather jacket, have Margiela Tommy boots on, and know who Rick Owens is. This nail polish prince is still really mourning the loss of an opening ceremony and trying to chalet. This man will 100% keep his yellow sunglasses on in bed. 100% will try to make you believe that you're the only one direction in his life. He will follow any e-girl that has a Vivian Westwood choker on in the Lower East Side and 100% pretends to like his music. In case you were wondering, we here at To That Point Media do believe that TikTok is the future of journalism. Therefore, you'll be getting a lot of our TikTok for you page here. I love it. It's kind of interesting to think about because like all joking aside, we actually see characters like this all around us in the city, like the mysterious man in chinos that you met at the art gallery opening in Lower East Side last night. He probably dresses up for his role as McKinsey project leader for his Midtown matinee or the super chic red-lipped woman you admired on Fifth Ave might slap a college tote bag with her on the Amtrak back home to Connecticut for the holiday weekend. At one point or another, you'll likely see the entire cast and crew on the same stage together. Just a few blocks south, as a matter of fact, in the heart or armpit of Manhattan. We're taking you to the epicenter of entertainment in New York City, Midtown. 